What's up, everybody? Co-host Nelson here, homies of Lit, giving you guys another featured artist today. And with that, I'll send it on over to Randy. What's up, everybody? It's your co-host, Randy. Um, as Nelson said, we're doing another featured artist uh, segment for Homies of Lit today. And today we're featuring an artist that I actually met through uh, my college experience at Cornell in Iowa um, as public relations for the Latin Student Union, Union Latinx. I actually had communication with Frankie Soto, um, brought him to campus. He gave a really dope performance of spoken word poetry. Um, and yeah, so we felt like he'd be a really good addition to our current segment that we've been doing this past month regarding toxic masculinity, um, particularly because he talks about that a lot in his poetry and he did during um, our introduction, but he's also working on uh, manuscript right now of poetry focus around this subject. So with that, I'll let Frankie introduce himself. Uh, what's up, y'all? I'm Frankie Soto. Um, I'm not big into biographies, but I'll give you a little background. Uh, I'm a Puerto Rican artist, grew up in the BX. I've uh, been performing for about 18 years now uh, as a poet and as a writer. Um, yeah, and you know, talking about masculinity and the machismo and what I grew up with and uh, being an influence as a man, it's something that it's prominent in my work and something that I'm trying to get out there so that boys and men can understand that we're more than what our forefathers taught us and uh, trying to change the definition of what masculinity is. All right, and can you give us a brief um, explanation of the manuscript that you're working on right now and how it pertains to this subject? Yeah, well, I actually um, recently, through the advice of another writer, I broke uh, my manuscript up into two chapbooks. So one is Valiente, which is Brave, and the other one is Petricor, um, which is the smell the earth releases um, after rain. So that one particularly is going to be speaking more about men interacting with love within themselves. And Valiente is basically talking about boys getting through the toxicity that they uh, grow up with. And I did actually remember, I took a note of this um, when I was writing down like the outline for an episode down your Instagram, you posted that you yeah. broke it up into two. It was hard. Thank you. Thank you. It, it, it was hard to break it up though. It's, it's hard for a writer just to say, I'm going to, I've been working on this for two years and now I'm just going to separate it into two 35 page books, which is, it's difficult. Yeah, yeah, no, I definitely feel that whenever, I mean, I'm currently working on a story where I merged two stories for like the title piece of my uh, collection. And it was only supposed to be like 30 pages. Now it's 47 pages. And I'm like, I should probably chop this shit up. But I'm like, nah, like, it's just like, it feels like it has to exist this way. So listen, sometimes, sometimes you got to follow your own way. I mean, for me, it was I was getting stuck. I was submitting it, submitting it, and I was getting a lot of good reviews, but I wasn't getting anyone to pick it up. It is, a lot of it is bilingual. And as you've seen during my performance, I don't speak fluent Spanish, but I write a lot of pieces that incorporate my broken Spanish into my poems. And um, to find a publisher that wanted the full collection, I knew was going to be difficult because you don't really have a lot of Hispanic or Latino, Latinx-based organizations that are just publishing this kind of poetry. So you have to understand the market that you're working in and separating it allowed it to be more diverse that it could reach different groups. So 
it was for the benefit, but it was difficult, man. A writer having to chop away his own work or her work, it's not easy. Yeah, and then I, I think that's an important point to kind of just note for like all the, um, I, I guess underrepresented writers, I was going to say Latinx writers, but underrepresented writers in yeah. general, like when you're submitting work, because I get a lot of rejections that sound like when you read the the body text, it sounds like, wow, they actually really enjoyed this piece. But there's always like, ah, it just wasn't the right fit, right? Because like they can't market it to their readers. It's like really, mm -hmm. like it's difficult to find a space where those pieces will actually be accepted. But I mean, they do exist. You just have to do some really deep digging. Yeah, um, it's hard. It's hard, man. I get a lot of those that they they almost similar to you. They They enjoy the piece. They connect with the piece, but they don't feel it's going to reach to their their base, you know, what they're getting their work out to. They don't know how they're going to take the pieces. So a lot of them reject you because they don't know if they can sell it to their own market, you know. So it's difficult. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a bitch. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> that's better way to better way to phrase it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Here we can use whatever language our homies are lit. So... Um, I want to start off with a question that might be really broad, but I'm hoping that'll be really broad so that we can kind of hit a lot of markets here. But thinking, so reading through, so Frankie sent us about five poems to read before our interview and conversation. And throughout reading them, I was, you know, there's a lot of talk about like, how men are told to conduct themselves, particularly within Latino households, and then push back against trying to encourage men to present themselves and conduct themselves in a different way, a more positive way, um, a more, I want to say like positively emotional way. Because um, mm. we're always, I think there's this misperception that men aren't emotional. Like men are emotional, it's just toxic emotions that we're mm -hmm. told that we can relay, right? We kind of relay those more positive, softer, we can say emotions, we relay the hard ones. So. Um, I wanted to ask, so you said you're Puerto Rican, so you can answer this either from Puerto Rican context or you can okay. just, I mean, we're all Puerto Rican here, so that'll get brought up inevitably. But I want to ask, so for you, what did being a man mean growing up and how do you feel that that has changed over time? What life experiences do you think have led to that change over time? So like, what, did what, I what did being a man mm -hmm. uh, mean before when you were a kid and growing into adulthood and what does it mean to you now and has that changed drastically um growing up see i, I grew up in a very you know woman dominated household uh with my mom with my abuela with my titi um my father was you know he was part of the picture until i was about a teenager um but he wasn't a part of the picture after that so for me manhood was kind of really complex um i knew that i was really attached to certain emotions since I had sisters and women that like I looked up to and I would feel like, you know, people would always be like, yo, Frankie's just too sensitive. And that word become became something that would just frustrate me because I didn't really fit into the box of, you know, what too sensitive means. And I didn't really understand what it meant because I played baseball. When you grow up in the Bronx, you grow up a Yankee fan. I was playing ball, football, chess, concert choir, singing. Um, but I was also really sensitive. So I didn't really fit into the, you're either this, you know, you're either this sport athlete or you're this. Like I would play sports and then I would go home and I would write. So for me, man, it, 
there wasn't really a definition of what man was growing up. I, I think growing up now in the position I'm in, it's allowed me to just tackle it in such a different way that I think that's why I'm using my writing to show that, listen, you can look like me, you can talk like me, and you can be crying during a movie. You can be crying when you read a piece of work. You can, you know, openly tell, you know, your brothers and your friends, or listen, you know, I love you, man. And, you know, let's, let's have a real talk. That's not just about something toxic. It ain't about how many women we've been with or how many dudes we've been with or, you know, let's have a real talk where we're actually conversating and we're actually, you know, investing in each other. Um, so I think manhood right now, it's just, for me, it's, it's unlimited. I feel like there's no boundary. You know, the kind of man that I'm at right now, I feel like there isn't a certain limit that I have to be. If that expresses, it's, it's a, it's a really broad question. So it's really hard to. I don't know. know. It's meant to be very broad. Um, <laughs> but I'm comfortable. Do you, do you feel there's any pushback from your idea that there are no boundaries to manhood though? Like that you, that you've experienced. In oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, I think a lot of men are, are afraid of themselves. A lot of men are afraid to, to look inside and actually deal with some of the things that they feel and they don't know how to put a name to it. So they don't want to deal with it. Um, there's men that are just more progressive and just at a you know steadier pace of growth that they understand what their emotions mean. And there are men that are terrified to, you know, to actually put a name to what they're feeling and actually deal with it. So there's, you know, I think there's a lot of pushback. I grew up, like I said, you know, that there's a lot of manly, manly men in my family from police officers um, who are very confident in who they are as men. And I'm very confident in who I am as a man. And it may not fit because, you know, I am an emotional dude, but uh, you're always going to get pushback. I mean, we're still, as men, learning, you know, how, how to act in society, the Me Too movement, everything that's going on. We're still discovering ourselves right now. We're talking about centuries of men being taught that a certain way is the only way, you know. So we're just right now, you know, making small strides in it. Yeah, so we, in our last, um, for anyone who's following our podcast, um, our upcoming episode is going to be this interview we had with Luis Rodriguez. And we talk a lot about um, the negative manifestations of masculinity, we'll say. It's like toxic masculinity is tossed around a lot as a term. But so negative manifestations, some examples we gave were gang violence, right? Okay. Or men who are womanizers or the example that we give a lot in the podcast our father like he would like verbatim he'd go through this like laundry list of different things um that we couldn't relate to the women that we have relationships with the things that we could not do with them one of which the most prominent i think um is it kind of encapsulates everything else is not committing to them in any way like he's like you know you shouldn't be tied down by any one woman like you know you should like his thing was always which was ironic because he did get married but he always discouraged us from settling down and getting married right because he's like then you know you get trapped into this institution that you can't get out of right and like for me growing up like we didn't we didn't really have a very deep relationship with our father. I mean, we, if we were lucky for maybe the first 13 years of my life, we'd see him twice a year. I mean, once a year, some years, 
And they were usually, you know, very brief interactions. But whenever we did, he just left this very strong impression. And he just spent a lot of time preaching, right? And so, and he was in the military um, and in a gang. So he he left this, I think, very like deep-rooted uh, impact on me and my brothers, which we never like really actually talk about. Like the first time we've really talked about it, uh, it's just been really me and Nelson has been on this podcast and really like taking the time to think about the fact that like we only really had one perception of what men could be having not actually left the neighborhood and knowing a lot of guys that fell into the street culture and then having our dad that perpetuated and glorified that street mm. culture. So for us, like growing up, like our perception of what it meant to be a man was only ever toxic. So we never perceived it as toxic because it just meant being a man. Like we it's didn't have any alternative. Um, so at least for me personally to, uh, tackle the broad question. Um, like I've really discovered that, like, I always knew, like, and those, this was always a thing They always say like, Oh, Randy is really sensitive to, you know, you can list all the things Randy is sensitive to, but I was always keen to like questioning why I was feeling a certain way and trying to address that. Right. And like me, I'm like, if I see some shit on the screen that moves me emotionally, I'm going to let the emotion show, right? I'm like, yeah. motherfucker's asking, why are you crying? Motherfucker, did you not just watch what I watched? <laughs> like, I feel like this was moving, like, and this is why I feel this. But I feel like we're not really able to have those discussions. And like in my recent life, in just the past few years, and even when you met me at Cornell, I was starting to go through that transition where I was beginning to realize that. I could actually feel those emotions and that they weren't negatively impacting me. And I think that goes back to what you were saying, the fear of the self. Like we're so afraid that I think even beyond like when we feel and confront these things, not what people are going to think, but what impact it's actually going to have on us as an individual. Like how is this going to change me? And it's like I losing think that- an, I, it's like losing, not to interrupt you, but it's like losing an identity you built. You know, if, if your father had this, strong impact on you guys you've built this identity of masculinity being just this so not only are you you know having the conflict of understanding your own emotions you're having a conflict of shedding an identity that you've only known to be what man is so that's difficult like you to you this is what i was taught man is and you've strongly believed that that's all you could be so now as you're learning and you're incorporating new beliefs and you know, going through life and you're experiencing new things, you're realizing this isn't, you know, this isn't the ceiling for what manhood is. So you're confronting your own history from what you're taught and building the future that you want as a man. That's difficult when it's all coming at once, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree. And like, that's why for me, and I'll let Nelson speak more on this point because he is a father, but... Like for me, it's always been something that like when people ask me and it comes up often, anyone who grew up like in a Latino household, like Abuela is always going to ask you when the grandchildren are coming. If you don't have (laughs) grandchildren, it's just like a perpetual, you know, thing. And my well has always asked me that every time I see her, like, you know, it'll be maybe like three minutes in the conversation. It's like, so when are you going to give me grandkids? And then, you Mm -hmm. know, I'll list off all the other grandchildren she has. But then one time she asked me, she's like, well, why are you so afraid to have kids? And I'm like, you know, that's like, that's the first time someone asked me that. Cause for me, it very much is a fear. Right. And 
I think it manifests from that, like, like, only, like growing up with a father that wasn't present, right? And a father that I know was a negative influence in a lot of ways. And we always say, like me and my brothers, like he taught us what not to be in a man. Mm -hmm. But then that means we don't know what to be. Like we have to go and figure that out. So you're running blind in the darkness, right? You already yep. can't see, but like now, you know, it's, it's exemplified um, or exasperated rather. Um, but yeah, for me, that's always like, being a man has always, I think, directly like correlated and like being a good man is directly correlated to my fears and a lot of things. And I think for a lot of men, it does, but men won't admit that, right? Because again, then it showcases fear and it showcases weakness because, you know, fear and weakness are directly correlated. Mm -hmm. uh, but well said. like, I, yeah, I feel like for me, like that's something like it's like, I only bring that up again to show like how deep rooted it can be. And it's something I've realized over time, like through my writing and just through my different relationships with people, both men and women, um, like friendships and intimate relationships. And like, it really, it really does make you like, make you think like, why am I so afraid of this thing? And why is it so difficult to address? And, and that means in my case, like, I'm like, if I have children, then I have to, then like all these things are laid bare. It's like, we like to think that we fully have these things under control, but everyone knows they're in all the nuances of what we do. And yeah, I'll stop rambling I, about that. But that's I, I listen, I think as boys, we become masters at pushing things so deep into our subconscious that we don't ever have to really actually tackle it. Like, I think as boys, what we don't understand, what we feel, we just push it deeper down into the subconscious and we're not even aware until it comes a moment where you're, well, I asked you a question like that and it just all rises up and you actually have to like unleash it and actually deal with it and actually ask yourself those important questions of, you know, why am I terrified of this? You know, you know, why do I think I can't be any different? You know, but we men, men hide things, man. We're masters at it, even from ourselves. Yeah, for sure. You know, to I'm just going to jump as a, it all comes to wrap into what both of you guys said. You know, it's funny now that I think about, we talk about with uh, our father. Uh, yeah, he wasn't really around. It, and actually, the most time I've ever spent with him consistent, consistently in my life was when I joined the military. Go figure, right? But when Randy, yeah. you know, Randy mentions he was also in the military and he was also in a gang. And now... I never put these two together. I was in the military and I was in a gang. I was in the same gang as him and I joined the same fucking branch. I went to the same unit, you know? So, I mean, look, I never had any resentment to my dad uh, towards my father or uh, for a long time, didn't even really care to see him. It was uh, me and Randy actually were talking yesterday about just who, you know, like networking and shit. And it was almost like he was a network, a real shitty one. Cause obviously it didn't work out too well, but the only network we had, right. Um, I joined a gang, um, and we talked about this uh, in the, the episode we recorded with Lewis. When either it's going to be out before you guys heard it, or it's going to be out after, depending on when we release this, guys. Stay tuned. Okay. Uh, but um, yeah, so pretty much my dad, my mom, everyone, they glorified being in a gang. Um, talked about how they had everything under control, and it was the smartest thing they ever did. And uh, to make the point that when they, I had joined the same gang as them. I'm talking the same neighborhood, same set, the whole fucking night identical uh and my mom was like oh well i did it so fuck it i can't say nothing to you but my dad and this is where i know my dad's just a sack of shit he's hilarious he says 
oh, well, you did it the wrong way. So that right there, that's the kind of shit that you just don't need in your life, right? The man is convinced there's a right way to do something like joining a gang. So there's that, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, wow. so my – okay, for growing up, I think the only – as far as being a man, the definition of – being a man because Randy came here to play ball and start asking these these broad questions right <laughs> definition of, of being a man look one thing I could think of because again I was real heavy into the, the gang culture so it's not like I was just wandering about you know what I mean I was all into gang culture so for us um, and I'm sure we could all attest to this especially like with, with our father and everything the only emotion a, a man's allowed to have is anger right it seems to be the only thing that's accessible to us everything else don't make mm-hmm. sense you know what I'm saying they say things like you're too soft uh, don't be a bitch. Stop acting like a pussy. And the reason I mentioned that one is because in yeah. the poem, you, you referenced that. It's pussy also means scared. No, listen, I was, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so I wanted yep. to make a point of that because that's like the biggest go-to right there when they're telling you to do some shit you shouldn't be doing. Oh, what's it? this guy's a fucking pussy, right? And now you got something to prove, right? Because that's just, the, that's uh, the basic terminology. That's, the, you know, that that's how it is when we're talking to other men. Everyone's got to be, just big, strong, angry, fearless guy. And that that's why, honestly, when when growing up, pretty much being a man was essentially just being full of shit, but even to yourself. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because you lying to everybody. You know, now I walked the streets pretty aggressive. You know what I mean? Because that's all I knew. It was all aggression. I was out there fighting, stabbing, shooting, you name it, we were doing it. You know what I mean? It was all on the air of aggression. And so there was actually a definition of being a man. You were down for whatever. Again, this isn't my growing up because our dad talks about this too. Never did he fold. Motherfuckers would shoot at him and he wouldn't run. Like this guy is so full of it. He embellishes like a motherfucker, man. So, you know what I mean? But that's how this this is, uh, I guess, what a man is, right? And then you go to, you know, the guy on the block. He's older than you and he tells you that, you know, you got to be down for the hood and shit. So my definition of a man was you got to be down. You never leave your people and you're always down for whatever. Motherfuckers want to fight. You want to get to a shootout. We're going to rob some shit. We was doing it all. It was all fucked up, right? That's what we thought a man was, to prove that you were down and you weren't afraid of nothing. And, uh, yeah, you were just angry. You know what I'm saying? Everything can be handled with, with violence and anger. Uh, join the military. Managers screaming at you all the fucking time, telling you you're worthless. So there we go again, mm-hmm. doing the same shit. So, um, yeah, so I, ha- I have four kids. Um, one twelve, one. God bless you. <laughs> yeah, I had to get him out of here to record this podcast, man. So, 112, 110, obviously, you know, I'm 23. So, for you guys doing the math, like I mentioned most times, uh, my wife had uh, those two in a previous relationship. And I had my younger two, three and two, uh, in previous marriage. So, uh, yeah, when I decided to have kids, my my daughter, she was born, I think I was 19. I was like, yeah, you know, I just I want a kid. And they're like, you're not ready. So, I'll never be ready. Uh, I'm just name someone who decided let's just have one you just wake up like hey fuck it. you know we're gonna try and then you realize that well you didn't know what the fuck you were gonna get involved with until it happened mm-hmm. so i think for me i just kind of live my life that way really just busting down doors all the time you know what i'm saying so it's like if i don't know what's gonna happen well there's only one way to find out how it's gonna happen you know what i mean so for me that's what i ended up doing so i like i, I don't think i was scared to have kids and um after i had kid uh my daughter uh, I actually didn't change. And um, I think that's a big point that I want to make because a lot of people, um, and I used to say it too in the hood, oh, well, the minute I get some kids, you know, it's over with. I'm done with this shit. But that's not actually how it works. Uh, 
and just people look man having kids it doesn't mean you have to change and let's just be honest they don't always change you like you could fall in love with your kids and still do the same bad things you did right and I think that's important because everyone swears like, oh, he just needs to get a kid in a family. What good is having a kid in a family if he's still going to be the same way? Per- perfect example is yeah. our parents, everyone's parents, they had us. Our dad's still a sack of shit. The man got like 10 kids. When is he going to change? He's not. You know what I'm saying? And I, yeah. It's like the, I mean, it's the term broken can't teach broken. I mean, you know, it's the same. If, you, if you're not, if like you're talking about, if you don't heal, you can't offer any anything to anyone. You know what I mean? So broken can't teach broken. You got to heal before you can, you know, really believe yeah. in that. And so it ends up being uh, hard. And so for me, look, for as like you said, there's like no like, uh, there's like no ceiling, no destination for what what's a man now. You know what I mean? And, you know, lucky for me, like uh, my wife is a lot more patient than I am even with myself, right? Because it's not like I could be on this podcast and be like, you know, my kids changed my life and they did, but I didn't just wake up a new man. I I'm aggressive as fuck. And it's, you know, having older children, uh, mm-hmm. really made it some somewhat more revealing to me. You know what I mean? Because, uh, in the beginning, I was just like, you guys are too sensitive, right? That was like my go-to because I'm just aggressive and really straightforward. Even men tell me I'm, I'm just, too aggressive all the time like i'm hostile so think about it we're talking about men so imagine yeah so my daughters sometimes i tell them shit and they start crying and i'm you know they run out to cry and i'm like what the, what the fuck is she crying about right and this just happened yesterday too my daughter was trying to like fix her shoes mm-hmm. and shit the crease in her shoes with like a fucking ziploc bag or some crazy shit so i go into the <laughs> kitchen i just start laughing at her. i'm like hey what are you doing and she's like oh i'm gonna fix the shoes i'm like Nah, fam, it's over, man. Them shoes just ain't gonna work out for you, <laughs> you know. And I'm like, and why are you putting your dirty shoes on the kitchen table, though, man? Like, come on now. And she's like crying in a room and shit for like 20 minutes. And I'm like, what the fuck is up with her, right? So I go in there and I'm like, yo, man. Yeah, I'm like, yo, man, why are you crying? Oh, it's because it is. She starts saying all this shit. I'm like, none of that is even happening right now. So what is it? And she's like, oh, you got mad at me. And I'm like, when? What are you talking about? You're in here crying by yourself. No one's had time to get mad at nobody. You know what I mean? And she's like, oh, you got mad at me because of the shoes. I'm like, oh, you should, if you're crying in here, you should be crying because your shoes are done for, not because because I'm mad at you. <laughs> and such. But isn't, isn't, it, isn't it crazy how everyone observes anger in such yeah. a different way? No one receives anger the same way. I mean, how one person, it could just motivate them to, you know, work harder to like, you know, to make you proud, it can make the, the other child break down. And uh, I mean, that correlates kind of to like my childhood. I'm the oldest. Um, I was always Frankie Jr. You know what I mean? I don't really want to get too much into like talking about my father because I spoke about him in my last podcast that I did. And uh, I got a lot of unflattering emails and stuff his way from me. Um, and then I realized that I don't want to make him the central part of you know, my conversations. Um, but, you know, it correlates to how I grew up, you know, thinking that I had to be a certain way and being a tough guy. I mean, growing up in the South Bronx, um, you know, it was different because I, I was around gang life, but I wasn't in a gang. Like, I was the kid that went into Abuela's apartment and she refused to let me out. So, like, we, on the fi- we were on the fifth floor overlooking a park. 
and the park that we were overlooking it, there was one window and my abuela's house was like plastic on the couches, no AC. I'm talking about if it was 98 degrees outside, it was 110 in the apartment. And God forbid she put more than one fan on because of the damn electric bill. Like we were suffering, but she was keeping me out of that lifestyle. So like at nighttime, you would see, you know, the fights break out on the basketball court on the park and I was never involved in it. They did everything they could you know, to keep me out of that life. I was the kid with books in my hand, walking through, you know, the projects, you know, walking to the four train to take it all the way to Manhattan to go to school with guys that didn't look like me, you know, didn't come from where I came from. So I was going to like privileged schools in the Lower East Side, taking an hour and a half commute to go learn there, to go back, to live where we lived, uh, and it, it just taught me so much. It taught me that the people that were slinging on the blocks and on, in front of the bodegas looked like me. But it taught me that I could look the way I look. I could still have this, you know, this street intelligence, this street mentality, and still be able to be intelligent and educated and be able to talk to people in a certain way that we could not be victims of our environment and not be products of our environment. And when I thought about gang life, like you can probably speak to it so much more intimately because you were in it. But the stories I heard from my uncles about my father, you know, and, and all my uncles and how they grew up on the street and how it was always like, you know, the Negros versus the Puerto Ricans versus the Italians in the Bronx. And there was always fight and you street cred meant everything. It meant more than how you treat people. But I thought I would always break down gangs to it's, it's just like masculinity you're just bonding over anger and resentment you're still seeking some type of validity through brotherhood you're still seeking to receive some kind of affection from the guy right next to you when you fight you want to make the guy right next to you in your squad proud you want to have his back some solidarity of we're doing this together to take out this gang we're doing this together to take out this gang and you want to prove something to the guy next to you. So it's still seeking some validity. Like you're still seeking some worth of brotherhood and affection. You're just seeking it through violence. You're seeking it to get reward from violence, but it just breaks it down to the foundation of men seek love, you know, in different ways. Some express it as, you know, I need to receive love. And then some express it by throwing a fist. And they think if they knock this dude out, they're going to make everyone proud, and that's going to be their affection. So men always seek some type of brotherhood. They just don't like to name it and call it, you know, the underlining of what it is. Men seek love. But when you're in a gang life, you can't call it that because then you're going to be weak. You're going to be a pussy. And we associate pussy with weakness even though our damn heads come out of it. It's one of the strongest muscles. Like, women are, like, the symbol of strength. Like, they bring us here. They raise us. Even when we're knuckleheads, they raise us. I mean, and we associate being weak with being pussy, you know? So I think um, to just break it down, I mean, it correlates to how I grew up because I, I would think that uh, I was different because of the way I felt. Yeah, like I definitely agree. Like I had like similar experiences um, in that, especially like our neighborhood. I mean, now it's gentrifying, so it's it's extremely different. Now it's like really... Like if you walk down this block, something might happen. If you walk down the main strip, you're fine type shit. Um, 
I remember like spending a lot of time, like I joined this after school program and it's like the one thing my mom allowed me to do after school. Cause she was, you know, typically like parents are like, yeah, you know, let me let him play this sport or like, you know, play this instrument. Cause it keeps him off the streets. But she was, um, she was like so inclined, particularly with me. Cause like my other siblings, they just, I mean, like Nelson knows, he just did his own thing. Nico was on the basketball team. My sister, I don't know what the fuck she did, but she was, you know, not home. Um, but I had to be home for whatever reason. And, but she let me join this one after school program. Cause I lied and said, it was like, kind of like a book club type thing or whatever. Cause I was always reading and shit. <laughs> and it was like a half and half thing. You know, we got to play sports. We got to do, um, it's like a tutoring thing. And I helped tutor some kids um, in English and writing. And I remember like I would walk with some of my friends. Like I made like really close friends with some of these like extremely like tough dudes, like dudes that I knew fought like at least three, you know, three days a week. Like, you know, <laughs> they were, they were deep in the shit. And like the way they acted when we were playing sports, like within the school, so like when we play basketball outside um, in the outdoor court, like, you know, they were tougher, like they were more aggressive, like constantly fighting. But indoors, you could tell like there was just a different energy. Like they like they were and I guess we can equate it to a safe space. Like there there wasn't that hyper aggression. They actually expressed interests like now, like being interested in anime is cool, for example. Like when I was growing up, like motherfuckers, like even Dragon Ball, which is nothing but people fighting. They're like, nah, I don't really walk with that. You know, like I don't watch it. I don't mm -hmm. read it. Like, you know, that's that's pussy shit. And then mm -hmm. I'd be in these classes with these dudes after school and I'd see they were actually, you know, we're actually connecting on this. You know, we're trading comic books and shit. Dudes that I didn't even think knew how to read because they were so adamant about the fact that they couldn't do this in public. And like, I mean, to go off the point of like, you know, guys really seeking love, but not wanting to call it that because, you know, again, calling it that, that would admit some type of emotional softness. Like I felt like in those spaces, like cause for me, I was always bookish. Like I, I was just always inclined to like more artistic things. And, you know, I cried when I felt like I should cry. Um, like being in these spaces with these dudes who were like extremely hyper-masculine at like the age of 12, 13. Like I realized that like there was so much of themselves that they were suppressing. I think like I, I really started to think, uh, I remember my teacher in the eighth grade, he got me this journal because he was like, you know, he's like, I feel like there's a lot you want to express. And he's like, when we have one-on-one -on -one conversations, it kind of comes out. But when you're talking to your classmates, it's not there at all. Like, you know, it's non-existent. Um, like it really, it really forced me to think like, why are we presenting ourselves this way? And why are we so afraid to express it? Like even in writing, right? Like, I mean, you're a writer, like I'm sure you've had moments like surrounded by, you know, these type of men where they're like, why the fuck are you doing this? Like you're writing poetry? Like, like, why, like what yeah. does a guy need to write poetry for? And like, it really, it really makes you think like, why are we so afraid to express it even in secret? Like the fact that women can have diaries and journals, but men can't, 
like when I tell people I'm journaling, they're like, oh, Randy has a fucking diary. I'm like, no, I'm just recounting my day. Like, I'm like, that's <laughs> literally it. But it's like, it's seen as this thing, like, oh, women only write in them to like, you know, release all these emotions because they're overly emotional. And it's like, man, if we actually just took the time to just relay these things, even to ourselves, like through the journals, like, I mean, a lot of times when I'm writing it, it's just a conversation to myself. Like, I'm like, why the fuck did you do this thing? You know, kind of break it down. Like, but like, I feel like the fear of self-expression and just self-awareness is so, it's so deep and convoluted that we convince ourselves that even to ourselves, we can't actually relay these things. And I feel like that's where like the quest for love from other people comes from because we don't actually allow ourselves to love ourselves. Like we can't, we can't dive into those things because that opens up a can of worms that we're not prepared for because society prepared us for the exact opposite, you know, or whatever our society is for. Yeah. But, you know, sadly we're conditioned by, you know, our environments. I mean, I think of like, you know, the origins of rap was in the South Bronx with ciphers. I mean, it was basically poetry and with a new cadence that people were like, oh shit, what is this? But, you know, people were going back, but it was, it was talking about street life. So people connected to it. So the lyrics people would connect to, cause it was talking about the, our, you know, where we grew up, like, you know, our conditions, which we relate to. If I didn't go to school, you know, in Christopher street, I would have never, you know, had one of my last sessions be a poetry project which I started writing poet. My first poem that I wrote, and I wrote it on the train going back to the Bronx, was a, a called A Home for Johnny. And that poem ended up winning an award, a Manhattan Award. Um, and it was literally about a kid growing up in the hood, taking the train to like this new world like that didn't exist where I was at. Where I was at, if I was going to make it as an artist, it would be rapping. Yeah. You know, it would be selling stuff outside the bodega and rapping because poetry, people wouldn't understand. Like, what are you talking about poetry? Like, I mean, Miguel Pinheiro was a big Puerto Rican poet out in Manhattan, but that was still in a very new time where they were like, yo, what's he doing? He's spitting acoustically. There ain't no beat. I don't know what the hell this is. What is this? Like, this is different. Like, but if you say poetry, it was just, it was that white thing. You know, it was that Shakespearean thing. Like, you know, the South Bronx didn't want to, didn't know what poetry was. It wasn't something that was relevant in the 80s going to the 90s. You know, it was, you say poetry had a negative connotation with it because people weren't, you know, didn't have access to it the way when I went to school at PS3, I had people like Elijah Wood, two grades ahead of me in the same school. People that were going to acting auditions and were just artistically, like their parents were taking them to this, this and that, piano lesson, this, that. You know, all my friends there that in the school look like me. You know, we, we, we came together. Like if I had a kid from my best friend since fourth grade lived in Brooklyn, you know, he was tall, big, dreadlocked, my, you know, friend Chris, and he was black. And we just, boom, we gravitated to each other. We're in the school, you know, where a lot of people don't look like us and don't understand where we come from. And we gravitated to us because, you know, we're conditioned to think a certain way. If we had this stuff, if this stuff was more accessible you know, in our communities, then maybe we're, maybe we're doing book clubs instead of, you know, street fights. Maybe we're doing these things, but, you know, we are conditioned to what our environment tells us that we can be until we start learning. There's a whole world outside of that, you know, that we can, you know, as men, we could be, you could be, listen, you could, you could read a whole novel, be a good ass father, and still knock someone the hell out if they, you know, if they come at you wrong. Like there isn't, 
you have to be A, B, or C, or D to be a man. You can still be tough, still read your daughter books at night, still cry when you watch Moana, which I freaking do when I watch it with my daughter or my son. And still, if someone comes outside and tries to start something, I'm still confident in using my hands to slap the hell out of someone. Like, there isn't one definition of what you have to be when you can become man, you know, to be a man. And I think um, that's why I like my platform because I, it took me a while to understand because every time I would go to school, they never thought I was the featuring poet. They thought I was going to do, I was going to rap. I was going to do something hip hop. You know, they never thought I was going to read and talk about this stuff. And that's why I, I did my first HIV poem that was uh, accepted to the A3C Atlanta Film Festival. So like, there had never been a poet that had ever made it to the hip hop film festival. We're talking about guys like Lupe Fiasco and all these big artists that are performing there. And then they got me doing an HIV poem on a 200 foot you know, projector to start off this festival. And it was just surreal. It was surreal because it's like, yo, listen, I'm going to use my platform as the way I look, the way I talk. And I'm going to do a poem on HIV and talk about how in my hood, you know, we don't talk about this stuff. We don't talk about wearing condoms. We don't talk about, you know, protecting ourselves. Like, you know what I mean? If you got Becky from the corner, you were hot shit. Like, you know what I mean? If she was a dime, you're supposed to get her. That's, you know, because your boys encourage that. You know what I mean? That gives you some type of street cred, some prop to be able to claim things, you know? And uh, I wanted to talk about stuff. I wanted to be able to talk about things that I could go back to the Bronx, feature, perform, and then people would be like, yo, I get, you know, I get exactly what he's saying. Like, I feel it. Because I hated when I had people come in suits and would speak at our schools. And I was like, man, they don't know what we have to go back home to. Like, that's easy for you to say. You don't know what it's like. You know what I mean? You don't know what it's like to have to have a freaking Swiss Army knife in your backpack because you might get hopped on 125th Street on the train. You know, we learned you don't take the train by yourself. You stay with your friends, you know, because... Once you leave that area, you're going back to a hostile environment. You know what I mean? You're going back to the society that you know. You know what I mean? So you have to be guarded, you know? So I take a lot of pride, man, being able to talk about the things I talk about and experience what I experience and be able to be like someone like me and say, listen, man, I'm a sensitive dude. Like, and it doesn't make me any less tough. It doesn't make me any less man. It doesn't make my history any less. It's just you get to a point where you want to be the kind of man that your son and your daughter look to become and look up to and want to be. You know, if, when I leave this earth, I don't want to be nameless. I want to be someone that they always remember and they talk about. And that, that's a big motivating factor for me because I don't speak about my pops like that. And I, I want to be I want to change the narrative of what they learn manhood is supposed to be. Even my daughter, I want her to look and seek a man that has the qualities that I've instilled in her that are qualities that she should be looking for. And now let me shut up because I've been talking hey, man, for a while. You're the, you're the featured guest, dog. All right. <laughs> but um, I hear you, though, man. I got three daughters and, you know, and one son. So, and my son's the youngest. So, you know, I think like, regardless, I got to set the example of what the man's going to be, you know, for my son and know how to treat people and for my daughters and I end up with these garbage ass motherfucking people that be running around the neighborhood and shit. Because that's just the truth. And, you know, back to like what I was saying earlier, you know, 
uh, I, you see, I had this habit where I talked to everybody the same, you know what I mean? And my, my wife, obviously not as often because I, I correct myself. My wife would mention it to me all the time. She was like, you know, why do you talk to us? Like, like, or just someone from the street. And it's like, you know, the thing is, is that I used to really, and we've gone therapy and shit. So my therapist told me this shit too. Said, See, I would treat everybody the same. And turns out that just ain't cool, right? Especially if you're treating them the way that I'm treating them, right? And I come at everybody like, yo, what's up? What? Look, motherfucker, you got to do this, you got to do that. But that's just, you know, how I've always been. And then it turns out that just don't work out, <laughs> you know? And, uh, you know, I, but that's how, uh, that's how I still, I still, function that way if someone comes at me real direct and real like you know aggressive i'm okay with that but then again at the same time my entire upbringing was built around hostility and violence you know what i mean like um, i wasn't even 15 yet and i had already got my three minute violation and you know what i mean you know and i had plenty more after that just for you know shit in the hood and in trouble and shit like that you know what i mean but i was just mm -hmm. built around violence and like I said, even in the military, uh, it's not like they actually respect you in there either. They talk to you like you're trash. It's the same shit as being in the hood. You know what I mean? So it don't, mm -hmm. it don't actually, it, it doesn't, you know, trans transfer out here to make us some sort of, you know, make me any nicer as a person. You know what I mean? And, um, you know, when I think about my kids, uh, I'm just like, well, you know, and my therapist mentions this too, you know, they're going to see what we do and our actions. Right. And especially if we just say shit and then we don't act upon them because they're just going to like take those mm -hmm. mental notes. And then when they get older, they're not going to understand why they're with some lying motherfucker or some you know aggressive ass dude or someone who doesn't pay attention to their feelings. Or my son's just going to go around listening to people thinking the same thing. Like when you mentioned that uh, they don't want to call it love, we just call it respect. You know what I mean? I was, not like again, not even 15 years old. I've already gotten, you know, I got beat by, you know, for three minutes by grown ass men. And then after my beating, which by the way, I had to take to prove that I could hang with the shit and take a beating and then mm -hmm. go out there and commit acts of violence as, as proof, as if I didn't just get whooped for three minutes. And then when, when that is your foundation for what makes you a man, well then you're just fucked because everything you're going to do after that is just going to be yeah. just pure violence. You know, and I've always carried myself around like that. Like, you know, when people, anyone who would criticize me, like, you know, I don't take positive or negative criticism to heart. You know, you feel how you feel. Cool. You know, for example, with the podcast, either you love it or you don't, but you tell me and I'll consider it. But I, I don't go to sleep, like worried about what people think. And I think that that's good for me because I'm trying to do a lot of things. But I had to alter mm -hmm. the reason why I felt that way. Cause before I used to be like, man, I'll shoot you in your motherfucking face. Uh, it's straight up. No bullshit. Like, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, I wasn't carrying knives out, out um, leaving school. I was stashing guns outside the school cause motherfuckers weren't jumping us. They were shooting us. You know what I mean? So yeah. like everything to me was like, look, man, I'll beat your ass. And when your homies come, we'll blow you motherfuckers down, man. And that was, that was how it was. And so we carried ourselves like that. And so, I've realized I can't just be shooting people just because we're arguing and shit, right? And we can't just be doing that kind of shit. However, I still hold to that, you know, I just don't let people, uh, I don't give too much um, attention or energy towards positive or negative uh, feedbacks and stuff like that. Um, because I think honestly, trying to figure out how to navigate the world and be a man and all this stuff um, in, in the space that we have to do it in, because at the end of the day, just because yeah. I decided that I'm not going to gangbang anymore, I'm going to pay attention to my daughters and my wife's emotions and make sure that my son is allowed to feel the way he feels. 
doesn't mean that when we leave the door that everybody's going to do that same shit for my family and for me. I still come across violent people. So people still looking at me like they want to do yeah. some shit. And you know what? We'll handle that business when the time comes, right? But I'm not out there looking for it. I'm not out there, you know, initiating it. So, you know what I yeah. mean? And this is, uh, you know, we get pushed. I get pushed back from the hood all the time. You know what I mean? Even like when I first stopped gaming and I had a set, you know, they left me a whole bunch of, you know, the shorties, the younger kids. And I just said, hey, we're done. You, 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 you don't bang no more. You know, obviously some of them join different gangs and stuff. I started fighting with these older guys and stuff. You know what I mean? That real physical pushback, not like, you know, someone calling me, hey, you, you, you a bitch, motherfucker. No, like I was, people were attacking me. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's the thing. Uh, one th- reason why I think this is um, good, like you said, the person who comes to the school and talks to you in the suit, that's the exact, that, that's exactly the kind of motherfucker that I'm not going to pay no mind to. Get your ass up out of here. Yeah, you and your exactly. suit. Go wherever the fuck you live, bro. That's not in Chicago. And if you're in Chicago, take your ass down to Wicker, Lakeshore Drive, fam, and get the fuck <laughs> up out of here. Because when I leave here, someone's going to be gunning me down. So unless you got something to say about that, don't tell me how I could change yeah. my life and shit like that. So I'm from the hood. And, you know, when people, anyone who's from the neighborhood who listens to this knows that to be a fact, right? So if anyone who knows me, that gives me the credibility that we really need. Because if I continue we continue to grow this platform and I continue to speak on these things with my experience. That's the credibility that's missing. That's the credibility that's missing right there. You know, absolutely. Because you're, you're reaching an audience that, you know, even myself or even Randy can't reach you. You know, if someone who's having a a glimmer of doubt of, yo, is this the lifestyle I want to live, but doesn't know who to talk to about it or who to, you know, you know, confide in, because they're so into the street life, they don't know who to trust and not, you know, hearing someone like you, hearing someone that's gone through the dirty, that's motivating because they're like, yo, he he's walked in the shoes and I'm in right now. He knows exactly what the fuck I'm going through. Like this turmoil of, I got to like do survival of the fittest day in and day out, but I don't want to be this man forever. So you're going to motivate someone that's following your footsteps more so than I can or Randy can because you live those shoes. That's why when I get to go, get the opportunity to speak to people and they're like, yo, man, I want someone to just tell me how it is. Like, don't, don't paint this white picket fence. Don't give me like these dreams that, that aren't the dreams that I grew up with. You know, give me this reality that I can dream about that you've gone through. I talk about the stuff that I gone through. When I did the HIV poem, I talked about me being that dude, me being that guy that was, just lucky that I didn't contract this like some of the people in my hood. Like when I talk about domestic violence poems, I talk about it because I seen it firsthand. I was in the corner of my bed holding my sister. I've seen men punching women. Like I talk about the stuff that I saw, like stuff that people might not understand, but this is real life. So when you present someone with real life wisdom, they're more prone to want to hear what you say and follow it rather than someone that's never gone through it now telling you how the world is at your hands and you can achieve anything like that's nice to say like we all want to believe that but show me the guidelines of how i can reach that show me how i can get out the hood and reach that show me how i can take the small steps to get to where i want because listen we don't have that direct access to just become great and become better people. Some people have to do it the hard way. 
So show me how I can get through the hardships to get to that positive place. And I feel like I'm lucky to have the platform to speak about my experience, experiences and say, listen, it don't have to be pretty. It don't have to be perfect. It just has to be progress. And if you keep making progress and you keep, even you just saying that you went to therapy, for me, that fucking is so encouraging. I love hearing that because that's something that's so taboo in the Latin culture, in you know the underrepresented cultures. We don't talk about therapy. Therapy is like one of those things that you talk about outside. You don't bring that inside. Like no one likes to talk about that. That's why I have pieces on going through depression as a Hispanic man, as a Latino, and not knowing who the hell to talk about. You know, why am I feeling this? Like, why am I going through this? And knowing that people may not want to hear it or understand it. Because, so, you know, when you grow up in like strong, you know, Latino eccentric households, you know, it's just, it's, it's just hard. We all, go, we all go through it. You know, Abuela went through worse. And his Abuela went through worse. Like, don't be soft. You can deal with it. And sometimes you can't. Sometimes shit is really a burden and we don't talk about it. So when you talk about therapy, I think that in, in itself is huge because people don't talk about that. Like to me, it's always, you know, people have this assumption that therapy is a white man's creation. Like it's, it's what white people do. White people go to therapy. We just slug it out. You know, white people go talk about their feelings. We just eat that shit and we just keep going. And we eat it until it kills us. Like until we have no identity, until we have no knowing of self, we keep eating it and eating it and eating it until that sadness becomes aggression and we look to hurt people. You know what I mean? I feel like when you have sadness that doesn't get an opportunity to heal, it becomes aggression. And it becomes aggression to yourself and it becomes aggression to people that you don't even mean to hurt. And that's what I mean when I say broken will always hurt broken and it will always be a trend. Until someone decides to heal, it's going to be a trend. You going to therapy is you saying, I'm not perfect. I want to fix shit. I want to be better at this. Instead of being letting my broken and the things I've gone through be the things that my kids are just, the only accessibility my kids are going to have are the same brokenness I had in my mistakes. You going to therapy is saying, I want to open up another route so that they can see that there is another way to go. And that's big. That's looking to heal. And you can't teach unless you're ready to heal. And men, we got to heal. We, we have stuff inside of us that we don't like to confront. And healing is important because we ain't going to get anywhere until we admit that we have, we have problems that we need to deal with. Yeah, I agree. Like going off of like the topic of therapy, because it's come up a few times in like different conversations we've had um, and always like sort of just like in passing. But like, I think like one of the huge stigmas, like some of us growing up, like, and we mostly grew up with our mom uh, and then, you know, whatever partner she had at the time, but she like, she is very much like that, like real example of a Latina who's like, you know, I don't want to hear any of it. Like I went through worse. Your grandmother went through worse. Her grandmother went through worse. I don't even know her grandmother's grandmother, but I'm sure she went through worse. So like, you know, deal with it. And I feel like in a lot of ways, like people feel like 
when you commit to something like therapy, you're committing to the end, right? Because it's like, now they can't, like at this point they're unraveling and the therapist is just going to reassure them of that. And then it's going to confirm it, right? And then they're done. But it's the beginning in a lot of ways, right? Like it's, again, the beginning of a healing process. Like you're, people always say when they talk about addictions that the first step you have to take is acknowledging it, right? Like it's acknowledging I have mm-hmm. a problem. Like for me, when I first finally decided to go see a therapist uh, in college, it was right before we met actually. Um, I remember like going back to like the sadness becoming aggression and becoming aggression to the self. Like I would hit myself. Like when I became upset with myself or something I did. And it just got to a point one day, I remember I had this like huge stack of books on my desk and like I was writing an essay or some shit for a class and I just couldn't get the essay where I wanted it to go. Like I knew in my mind where it should go, but I didn't know the path to get there. Um, and I just got really upset. I kind of paced the room. I knocked the books over. That didn't do anything for me. So I punched myself three times and then I stopped and in my room, there was this wardrobe and on the right side of the wardrobe, there was a mirror. And I remember like seeing myself just kind of like looking at how defeated I felt like it was physically present. Like, you know, it was more than palpable. And I just kind of like asked myself, like, why is this always a thing you resort to? Like, it doesn't make you feel any better. Mm. Like, you know, me hitting someone else would not make me feel any better. Like it's, in some ways, maybe releasing this tension that I'm feeling inside, right? But it never really gets to the root cause of the problem. Whereas when you go to a space like therapy, where you're talking to someone who's looking at this thing objectively, like you're actually able to tackle a lot of things that many people in your life would not be willing to talk to you about. Like, and Mm -hmm. you're getting to a point where even with yourself, these are conversations you're not willing to have. Cause like there, there are moments where I walked out of my therapy sessions. Cause I'm like, you know, we're not talking about this shit, but you know, then I came back and we tried again. Like it just, I feel like it builds this different, this different kind of tenacity. We see that aggression and we see, you know, being down for the streets. We see, you know, being down to knock a motherfucker out. As soon as they say something, we see that as tenacious. But it's not like it's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's running away from the actual problem. Like for me being tenacious and I mean, for me being a man in a lot of ways, like growing up how I grew up, it means being tenacious, like, but in a way that it's addressing what the problem is and actually trying to solve that problem in a positive and constructive way that again becomes progress. Mm -hmm. Like, so I'm like, for me, if I'm constantly, if, if you're going back in the example of me hitting myself, like if I stuck to that practice as my solution, like literally what I would do is kill myself, right? Because eventually I'm breaking myself down and I can never get back up from that. Like, you know, I'm crumbling at this point, even at the seams. But if I'm actively working toward finding solutions to all these demons that, you know, are kind of festering inside me and really taking over my body and treating it as a capsule, um, then I'm taking control of my own life. Right. But I feel like, like, again, going back to like being products of the environment, like we're, we're not taught that. So it's really difficult to actually believe that 
And even sometimes like, you know, people who go through the shit you go through when you hear them relay this thing, like it takes more than one person or it takes more than one instance when this actually, you know, be, it, it starts to hold truth and validity. But yeah, I feel like in a lot of ways, um, just to wrap up my statements, um, I feel like in a lot of ways, I actually do feel as though like me and Nelson, you, other writers I look up to, filmmakers, uh, one person I think of in particular, uh, Barry Jenkins, who directed Moonlight, was like, Moonlight was groundbreaking for a lot of reasons. You know, people go, could go down the fucking laundry list if they want to. But for me, what was really groundbreaking about it is that like it's showcasing a black man in the inner city, like, it's showcasing all his vulnerabilities and showing us like he can, like he does respond aggressively when his bully mm -hmm. is fucking with him. He smashes a chair over his head. And then after that, he goes to prison. Then he starts to sell drugs, but he realizes that that still doesn't actually give him the thing that he wants. And he wants this exception. He wants this love from another guy. Like, and he felt that, you know, expressing himself in all these ways was the way to do it. And then, you know, this guy comes back into his life and he tells him like, you know, like I actually settled down with a family. I had this, I had that. It wasn't perfect, but I feel more whole now. Like I've actually looked mm -hmm. into myself and I realized I did a lot of fucked up things. Like but I'm able to acknowledge that like this change is actually positive change. And even though I'm still struggling, like I know I'm going to grow for it. And I feel like, um, like that, those are all positive examples, right? Like writers who, like yourself, who actively address these things, that's a positive example. It's like, I think a lot of times like we really want the direct answer from people and that's like, we always feel dissatisfied, but like, I feel like there are like bits and pieces of the answer in all these different places. Like we just have to very proactively or like within ourselves, push ourselves to find that answer, right? And then to try to discover it within ourselves because it's always gonna be incomplete if you don't actually dig in yourself to find it. Um, so yeah, that's my closing thoughts on that. But also shout out to myself. Like you see why I've made the question so broad. I feel like we've touched a lot of bases. We did, we did, man. It's daily practice, dude. Being that there isn't any concrete answer on what being a good man entails. It's, it's daily practice, you know, each day. For me personally, like, I know I've always had a, a temper that I was, I witnessed from a young age, from my environment, from the men that were involved, you know, involved in my life. Uh, you know, aggression was just something that was just always accessible and always around. And I know I have that temper inside of me and it's something that I daily work on. Like it's something that I choose to calm down because if I let myself go rogue, I would let my temper destroy relationships. I would, my temper would have my son be me when I was a boy and we would just switch roles and I would be the influence that I swore that I didn't want to be. I mean, going to therapy, I've gone to therapy and going to therapy, it's not an answer either. It just opens up outlets where you can start to think about things that you didn't think about. Like going to therapy isn't going to fix everything. It's just going to open doors for you that maybe that you wouldn't have gone through before to start, you know, seeking things inside of you that you might have been afraid to actually confront before. So I think masculinity, toxic masculinity, what makes a good man, 
it's just it's daily practice. It's understanding that vulnerability is not a weakness and not being afraid as a man for yourself when you're indoors, just yourself, to ask yourself real questions, just yourself. You don't need anyone else to talk about it with. Just yourself. Ask yourself questions like, is this the kind of dude that I want to be? Am I the best father that I can be? Am I the best partner that I can be? Am I the best influencer I can be? Am I the best writer I can be? You, you got to ask yourself these things every night so that when you get up the next morning, you have, you know, you're ready, you're ready to tackle tomorrow better than you finished off today. And if you fuck up today, if my temper gets the best of me tonight, if I yell at my daughter when I know that I could easily just talk to her, then I got to make tomorrow better and I got to do my work and I got to make sure that I'm asking myself the hard questions of what kind of man I want to be. That's basically how each of us individually are going to understand the toxicity that we have because you can't run away from how you were raised. You can't run away from the toxicity that you carry. No matter how much you want to say you're not, you know, your dad and he's not his grand, his dad and he's not his dad, we all incorporate a little bit of what we learn from our childhood. And we all bring those demons into our present. So those aren't going away. You're not slaying those monsters with one swing. You know, it takes daily practice. It's like kind of like having that monster inside and locking him somewhere. Like letting him know that he ain't going to overtake you today, that you're going to be better, you know, that he's not allowed out. You know, that's basically what we have to do. Men have to do daily work, man. We have to daily, every day, work on being the best version of ourselves that we can be because there is no right way to be, especially when you grew up how we grew up, that's just going to fix everything. It's not ever just going to click and you're going to feel like a perfect man tomorrow. It's not. And that's the reality of it. There isn't some you know, book that you're going to read that's going to show you all the ways to feel burden-free, to feel like you can be the best man, forget about your past. Nah, man, you have to use your past. Your past, that's the best thing you have going for you. That's, that's your guide of what you don't want to be and what you want to be. Like, you don't want to run away from your past. Like, that's the wrong thing to do. Use your past right now to make you the best version of yourself. Like, I don't want to ever run away from myself. I want to see where I fucked up and where I could be better. When I write a poem, I want to see where I messed up. I want to see my edits. Like, I care more about my edits than I do the final product. When I write a piece and I take out a whole stanza, like, I, that's what I live for. I love seeing the creativity in my fuck-ups. Like, I love that. Like, that lets me know what I want the final version to be. That lets me know my progression from my rough draft to my final draft. And even when I have a final draft, if I look at it three weeks later, I end up rewriting a portion of it because I'm just always daily, daily evolving, daily growing. And what I think right now makes a good poem may not make a good poem in three weeks. What I think right now makes a good man may not be what I think a good man is in three weeks. It's daily practice. You know what I mean? It's using your past to continuously you know, propel you to become better. It's not having the answers and continuing to work. And that's how men, that's how we grow. And that's as men having these conversations like we're having on this podcast, that's progress, man. This is, this is big. Men talking about this stuff is big. 
because I've never thrown a punch when you when going back to what you said really briefly about hitting yourself. I've never thrown a punch and ever felt better. All it ever made me do was want to hit someone else. All it made me do is get adrenaline rush to do more damage. It's like if I hit something as hard as I could, I wanted to hit something else and I wanted to cause more destruction. And it was like anger just attracted more anger and attracted more anger and more anger. And it's like when you put your energy out there, you know, like Nelson was saying, like he changed, I think he said that he didn't, you know, he's open to, he's doesn't take negative or positive uh, feedback, you know, to heart too much, but he put a different energy out there. You know, when he was, he was leaving gangbanging, he put a different energy out there so that better things would be attracted to him. He would invite better things into his life that he didn't before. Or he may not have even realized that he could receive all these blessings before because he was so involved in his conditioning, his environment, that you get so swallowed up in it. And you're ne he's never going to get to run away from that. That's going to be his everyday life. That's daily work. You're never going to get to get away from the things, you know, that made you punch yourself. That ain't ever going away. That's part of Randy. You know, you got to just do the daily work every single day to understand you know, where that comes from and how to be better. You know what I mean? It's just daily practice. You know, it's, it's saying that we ain't perfect and being okay with that. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, uh, just to touch on the, you know, the this daily practice, you know, the thing is guys, for all you guys listening, especially, you know, you young guys in the hood right now, the folks out there bullshitting and shit and really thinking like, Oh, well, the older head said this and that. Let me just tell you something about these older motherfuckers, all right? They, these dudes are like 46 years old, right? They've been the same fucking person since they were 15 years old. And that's the fucking problem mm -hmm. with people. It's been 30 goddamn yep. years and you're still the same motherfucker you are. If you're the same person you were yesterday, you in trouble. Now, if you're the same person you were 15, 20, 30 years ago, you need to get the fuck up out of my face. So all you guys out there in the hood looking up to these old, <laughs> lame-ass dudes who live in the suburbs and come slide on you to tell you what to do while you put your life on the line, really just look for some new role models, man. And the thing is, I remember I, I, I touched on this in, in the, my last conversation on the podcast um, with, with Lewis, how if the doors aren't there for you, if they don't open for you to bust them down now, now if there's no doors to bust down and there's really just nothing there for you, then you got to build them yourself. There was no, there's no, there wasn't a homies of lit before homies of lit came out. You know what I mean? I was sitting down one day yeah. just thinking how nobody be talking about some shit and everybody in the hood, when people try to talk to me and I still have this problem myself because I, you know, obviously I, I was seeking a different path. So I would still talk to people on, you know, achieving wealth and becoming a greater strongest version of yourself but i would still look at them and in the back of my mind i'm like but where are you from though you know what i'm saying what you is though <laughs> you know what i'm saying and and mm -hmm. so i really thought okay the answer to that question is is i need to validate what these guys are saying because i need to take those steps myself right because then what happens is i end up standing alongside them instead of opposite them i end up standing on their side when I'm standing on their side, the next me that comes and starts saying that same shit, when they say, well, what you is, I say, well, you know what I'm saying? I'm from Chicago. I'm from the, I'm from the hood. You know what I'm saying? So mm -hmm. you, you got to correct yourself immediately. You know what I'm saying? Because remember, I'm from the hood. I'm not one of these motherfuckers in a suit. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? And for the people who are getting, you know, because some people do, I, I've talked about other things, real estate, and I got other businesses I'm working on, and people have told me like, oh, what? 
you think you think you're hot shit, you come here in a suit and shit. And I and you know, and I'll be honest, I remind him like, hey man, dude in the suit over there might not be from the hood, but I am, and this suit won't stop me from smacking the shit out of you. You know what I'm saying? Because we gotta <laughs> let it be known. I'm from the hood. Mm-hmm. And just because I left the hood, like you said, bro, that shit don't disappear. You know what I mean? Uh one thing is is uh we we taught ourselves how to be, you know, quote unquote fearless. But the problem is, is that if we were actually fearless, we would be addressing all our problems instead of throwing them into deep down into the cores of our existence and running away from them. Yeah. So for all you guys who are running around yeah. the hood thinking you guys are like, well, I, it is what it is. And, and not me. The only person who got me is me and all that stupid shit y'all be putting on Facebook and be saying in the hood and shit. Y'all not really helping yourselves at all. You guys are just afraid. And you guys are just living in fear, which is crazy because you get up every day and risk your life to stand on a corner and throw signs at people and shit. And that that makes you fearless. But really, you're just asking to die because you're just tired of your existence. Right. I used to walk around all the time like I don't really care if I die today. And I didn't. It's the craziest shit is I actually didn't. Right. But you got to think about why you didn't, because I thought like everyone else is that that's all that we had. This is what we were supposed to do. Of course, coming to that realization, Mm -hmm. it's like, well, why do I want to die for these motherfuckers? You know, and one thing that I for, for the guys who are in the hood, you know, the ones specifically who are already in gangs and in the gang culture. Um, the thing is, is that, like he said, it sticks with you. Just leaving the hood is going to have its own problems. You remember, we're coming from the trenches and you just go to some new ones. People who yeah. don't like you because you were banging are still not going to like you. All your rivals, even though you left the hood, will still be your rivals. And most importantly, above all else, your friends will continue to die, you know, and that's the most important part there. I, I've been to a funeral week for about three weeks now, and we had a funeral the week beforehand. My friends are dying left and right. I'm still in Chicago, guys. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and that's just happening. And like I like I told you off off record, uh, you know, there's still people who aren't dying, getting shot, getting stabbed, run over, all kinds of shit. It's hectic out here. And all the time, I think, you know, when it first happens, I'm on the mind like, man, we got to go get those motherfuckers because I know who did it. Everyone knows who did it because that's the chatter around the neighborhood. You know what I'm saying? And the problem is, is that that's when you really get tested, guys. You know what I mean? And just to know, even though you leave, the hood is still the same. That's why you had to go because if the hood was changing, you could stay there and change with the hood, right? But it's not. You know, we we have to make it a point of ourselves that if we if we want something better, we have to make it ourselves. And that means leaving. You know, and understanding that we are leaving because everything's the same. So you're still going to get those calls. You know, you're still going to get upset mm-hmm. when your guys get killed. You're still going to have that in the back of your mind. Like, man, I could just go pick up a gun. I know who this guy is. They haven't seen me in a long time. I could go handle that and I'll be in and out. But you're not supposed to be doing that shit because that takes you back to the person that you were. And that's not who you want to be. So those are, you know, that's my wrapping up, guys. You know what I mean? Like, if you can't find anything, uh, think about what it is that's missing in the world or what it is that you wish you had and, and go find it, create the shit for yourself. Uh, we hope that this platform is a platform that's working for you guys. You know, we really try to address, like I said, uh, when I first, you know, when we first introduced ourselves that we're just trying to bridge the gap, you know, I, I was involved in the gang culture and, you know, running the streets and all that. And Randy went to college and that's why we have two, you know, we look at the two, you know, two different sides of that same coin, you know what I'm saying? So we're trying to open as many doors as possible. And with time, we'll have more and more doors for you guys, you know, in the neighborhood and people who are just lost overall as an underrepresented people. But, you know, until then, hey, we're not the only ones who can do this. 
anyone out there who has an idea and wants to do something, just hop on it and, and build those doors for other people so that we can start opening doors for people so less and less of us are confused as to what makes a man, confused as to what life we're destined to live, confused as to what's normal and thinking that we're just going to get up and hit the streets and die and understand that the world is open to us just like it's open to everyone else. And yeah, we might have to work a hell of a lot harder to get what someone else has handed to them. We might have to work extremely hard to be exceptional and our exceptional, you know, achievement might be considered average to someone else. But again, it doesn't matter what other people are doing. That's why I don't put, you know, energy into positive or negative. Just focus on how you make yourself better because you don't want to be the same man you are today in 40 years. You just don't want to do that. Yeah. And that's what I got. Yeah. And going off that, I actually thought of this um, quote that from the movie Birdman, uh, directed by um, Alejandro Gonzalez Oñalito, who's a Mexican director, very talented. Um, but there's this bit. So the movie basically, long story short, there this guy is trying to kind of uh, adapt a Raymond Carver short story into a stage play. And Edward Norton's character um, tells the main character, basically explain to him why he thinks he's a scrub and why he thinks he won't actually achieve this. He's like, he's like, you know, Raymond Carver, he, he carved out a piece of himself, like a piece of his heart, a piece of his liver, every time he wrote a story. And so like for you to properly adapt this thing, you need to be willing to give a piece of your own being into this production, into this piece of art, into this work. And I think like I, I mentioned that because when we talk about like, you know, going back and all the comments are being made, like men, especially like in street culture, like waking up every day, like, you know, I'm willing to die for the block. Like, you know, it's it's literally saying I'm willing to give myself up to this thing that really isn't gonna bring me any fulfillment. Like, and so for me, like as a writer, like I always think about that quote and I have it at the beginning of most of my journals actually, as I'm like, when you're writing this story, like, are you giving like a real piece of yourself? Are you willing to, you know, like to put your body on the line to create this art that's going to influence people? Like, and so like when I'm writing a story, I'm like, is this shit actually going to impact someone is this going to have a large scale impact you know this piece of art that i'm creating um so like i say that to say basically like instead of like you know convincing ourselves that we have to put ourselves on the line in a negative way into things that aren't going to bring us fulfillment we need to think about like how we're putting these energies into more positive things to create positive ripple effects in our lives um those are my closing comments. And I want to ask one last question to Frankie to, so that he can give us his closing comments. It is, yes, um, yes. Why, why do you think poetry is, um, in, in your world, the perfect medium to express yourself in this way? To tackle these demons that you have or these questions that you have? Oof. Um, I, I just think... It, that's such a good question, man. I think I just, it was something that I ran to at a young age. It was a place where I, w I wasn't afraid to be myself. I mean, you know, like I said, growing up, looking the way I look, I was, it, it was hard not being a gangbanger, but living in the South Bronx, it was hard being someone that read books and played chess, but also played baseball and football. It was, it was always difficult to, knew, to know where I fit. Um, 
But when I had a journal, when I was in my room and I was writing, there was no boundaries. Um, there was there was no fear. Like I wasn't afraid to say anything. I wasn't afraid to say things that I would be judged by one side or the other. I wasn't afraid to be too sensitive. I wasn't afraid to just say something that was outlandish. Um, the page just offered me like an opportunity to just understand what Frankie Soto was the most in a world where in a world where everything is just a mixture of confusion of what you are, what you're allowed to be, what you should be. The page didn't ask anything from me other than to just be my most vulnerable self. There was no judgment. There was no worry. It was just a place where I could just be Frankie Soto. And, uh, and it's always just been like that. I think that's a good answer. The page is essentially like a blank slate. Um, so that wraps up our conversation, everybody. Um, want to thank Frankie Soto for agreeing to appear on the podcast. Absolutely. Um, like I said, I met him a few years ago. I've been, uh, I follow him on social media, which you all should do and which I'll give him a window to plug his social media. Um, but yeah, he's always, at least for me, I've always like kind of seen you as an influential person, especially after we first met um, and you gave your poetry reading. I remember you started it with an open mic. And I always like that's like it was after that performance and hosting a few other people at Elizabeth Acevedo also like two weeks after you'd come. She's she, she's 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 dope. really dope. Um, and I I mentioned that because like it's it's one of those things where like Frankie could have just showed up and he could have just performed and he could have left. Like he could very well have done that, but he took the time to say in the beginning like I want you all to open this conversation up and then I'll add my contributions. Um, and again, like just for people who are listening to think about how we can use our mediums to empower other people, right? Like through this podcast, inviting other people to speak and also just sharing, um, these stories and talking about these books. Um, so yeah, thank you for appearing on the. Absolutely, man. If I could share one thing about that show that I'll tell you that I never spoke about with anyone after I did that show, I had one of the students come up to me and uh talk to me about a specific poem i did and uh literally tell me that he had planned to kill himself the next day and he heard one of my poems and it literally made him break down everything that he was thinking to the why um to really ask himself why these thoughts are going through his head and man we had a we had a 45 minute conversation afterwards he hit me up on social media he had some dark thoughts in his head and uh, that's why I do it, man, because you don't know what anyone's going through. How people appear could be the biggest facade, man. You never know what someone's really going through, what they're really feeling inside. Um, so I always do my open mics because, you know, you don't expression needs to be felt all along. So you getting to express yourself gives me an energy and then I get to express myself and then we all get to share in it. I mean, it's not enough if I'm just the only one giving out. I need to receive as well. And it's a nice back and forth. But just because I never spoke about that before, that particular show, just one poem that I did, it reached this dude in such a way and he shared such, like, I'm not going to share his name out of respect, but it was big. It, it just showed, like, how important these conversations and these discussions and this raw vulnerability is because you never know what the toughest dude to the, what we call soft dude is going through. You never know.
Yeah. And I think, again, that's a, like an incredible testament to how powerful these mediums can be and how just, you know, even if you're not writing poetry or writing fiction, like just sharing that voice and giving people the space and just having those discussions, um, how influential it can be on someone's life, um, whether you realize it or not, and whether they relay that to you or not, you never actually know whose life you're going to change. Nope. Just asking your brother once in a while, hit up your boy once in a while, ask him, you know, how he's really feeling. Don't ask him how his day's going. Ask him how he's really feeling. Like have conversations, you know, tell your boys that you love them when you get off the phone. Don't be afraid. You never know when it's the last time, you know, don't be afraid to show, you know, love, with, you know, with your hombres, man. Your brothers are important. Your peoples are important. Say I love you until you can't say it anymore. Show love as much as you can because you don't know how long we're here. You don't know who needs to hear it. You don't know when we really need to say it. So I'll leave off on that. Uh, you want to uh, let people know where they can find you on social media real quick? Yeah, it's, it's really easy. My name's Frankie Soto. So if you just Google Frankie Soto and you Google poetry, Frankie Soto Poetry at Instagram. Um, FrankieSotoPoetry.com is my website. Um, I have videos. I have poems. I have um, clothes, like acknowledge your privilege for all of us to understand our privileges in our life uh, for the BLM movement, which isn't a movement, you know, because black isn't a movement. Um, it's what you are. And we need to be aware of that. I have my hats, empathy over ego which is, um, speaks directly to masculinity, um, pride and ego is one of, as men, one of our downfalls, um, pride, man, will take you to your grave with it. Um, so it's just having empathy, being vulnerable. I have a bunch of stuff and check out the website, um, read some poems. I have a lot of stuff up there just for people to read, just to watch and, uh, you know, just connect with it however you may. All right. And again, everyone who's listening to the podcast, be sure to download and subscribe. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Homies Lit. Um, shout out to our brother Nico for editing all the audio. And yeah, I'm your co-host, Randy. Yeah. And I'm your co-host, Nelson. Signing out. <laughs>